This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 2nd, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has ended its term. Cato Institute's senior fellow in constitutional studies, Ilya Shapiro, gives us a rundown of the cases that mattered most and the justices that mattered most. Well, it was a, uh, a pretty good year for those who are concerned about uh, civil liberties, uh, cutting down on lawsuit abuse, um, you know, reading legislation as it's as it's supposed to be read, um, and uh, and not having judicial overreach, with some exceptions. This year, the court decided 70 cases, which is a record low. Uh, each year, they seem to be going further and forth, further towards putting themselves out of business. Uh, although, as I'll discuss in the future, um, that ca- that trend might be reversing itself. Uh, some of the more important ones, let's go by, by topic areas. Well, first of all, uh, and most recently, the Heller case, uh, the court, of course, threw out the uh, District of Columbia's ban on handguns and uh, rule that if you want to have a long gun in your house, it has to be unloaded and either disassembled or trigger locked. Uh, this is a significant opinion. It's the first time that the court has dealt with the Second Amendment uh, on all fours, um, and the first time that it's mentioned even the amendment in uh, almost 70 years in a, in a little squib of a case called Miller um, that really was made out to stand for more than it, more than it did. Uh, others have uh, talked about Heller um, a lot, and especially elsewhere on the on the Cato website and other podcasts. I won't get, go into it more here. The other case that was also uh, very controversial recently was Boumediene, the enemy combatant in Guantanamo, the court finding again five to four, again Kennedy being the uh, deciding vote, and in this case writing the opinion, uh, finding that the uh, the detainees in Guantanamo have the right to petition for habeas corpus, or at least that the procedures that Congress had set out um, for their claims was insufficient. So it remains to be seen whether Congress uh, will legislate further, and it's pretty sure that they won't until the next administration, whoever's the, the new president, um, or whether we're going to see just everyone going through to the... Uh, Court of the, the the federal district court in the District of Columbia, uh, which has already had several meetings about how they're going to review these claims. A companion case, or decided on the same day to Boumediene, is Munaf, which found that uh, dual citizens, U.S. and in one case Jordanian, in another case Iraqi, held by U.S. troops as part of the multinational force in Iraq, were under U.S. custody and therefore could petition for habeas. But uh, in those conditions, the Uh, Even if they were released, they would, again, be apprehended by the Iraqi authorities because they had broken Iraqi law, and therefore there was no remedy, and therefore their petitions were dismissed. The other really controversial case in the last part of the term was the uh, uh, death penalty for child rape case, Kennedy versus Louisiana. And while I take no position as a matter of policy or, or, or morals as to whether this is the right way to go, as a matter of constitutional interpretation, it seems to be a bit of judicial overreach, again by Justice Kennedy, uh, in substituting his uh, view of what's appropriate and uh, under the evolving standard of decency, as his jurisprudence has, has noted, um, representing his views for those of the uh, individual states and the, the people and their representatives. Uh, moving to the business side of the docket, uh, the last case that was decided was Exxon, which reduced the uh, punitive damages from $2.5 billion 
to about just over 500 million uh, under the rule that um, uh, sitting as a common law court interpreting maritime law, not constitutional law, uh, that it would be reasonable to have a one-to-one ratio between compensatory and uh, punitive damages. Now, this is ruling is narrow because, as I said, it only applies to maritime law, but the opinion by Justice Souter did uh, show the, the court's frustration that the lower courts were not following its instructions generally with, relating, uh, with respect to punitive damages and that the one-to-one rule might be a constitutional one in future cases. The other thing to note about, is this, ca- about this case is that the issue that got the court to even be talking about whether the punitive damages were excessive was the liability issue, the issue of uh, whether Exxon as a company can be derivatively liable for the negligence of its managers. It's, it's uh, in this case, Joe Hazelwood, the captain of the tanker. Uh, and that ended up splitting 4-4. Uh, Justice Alito was recused from this case because he owns Exxon's stock. Uh, therefore, the Ninth Circuit's decision is summarily affirmed without setting any precedential value. And this raises the case of the issue of whether judges should be recused uh, or should recuse themselves when they own even a small amount of stock in a party before them. There's a very strong case to be made, and that I tend to agree with, that uh, at, certainly at the Supreme Court level, um, justices should not, uh, the conflict is, is much less than the harm uh, in having these 4-4 split decisions. Other business cases uh, were Stone Ridge, a securities case, which we talked about earlier, which found that uh, uh, the implied right of action is really limited only to um, uh, defendants, to plaintiffs that were uh, directly harmed by a, by a public statement of, of the defendant. And there's some other interesting cases which you'll be able to read about in the Cato Supreme Court review. Um, some election law cases, the Indiana voter ID um, on, on the on the evidence before it, the court, uh, including Justice Stevens, uh, found that the the Indiana voter ID law was fine; that it did not uh, represent a substantial harm to voting, a substantial burden to voting. Um, the court struck down by five to four uh, the Millionaire's Amendment to the McCain-Feingold uh, Campaign Finance Reform Act. Uh, the Millionaire's Amendment uh, penalized candidates who were self-funders, essentially giving various regulatory advantages to their opponents, which, surprise, surprise, tend to be the incumbents. Uh, another couple of election law cases, basically the court is saying that uh, uh, the court's not going to interfere with the internal workings of political parties. Um, and again, you can read more about this in the Supreme Court review. A couple of other things on the criminal side, uh, lethal injection uh, is legal, the particular cocktail in, uh, in Kentucky, and therefore lethal injections have resumed around the country. And when the court said that uh, sentencing guidelines were just guidelines and not mandatory, they meant it. And this, this year they looked at um, uh, courts reducing sentences based on uh, disparities in, uh, in the guidelines between crack cocaine and, and powder cocaine. And again, the court said it's, it's basically up to the discretion of the district court judge. Finally, the case that I'm writing about for the Supreme Court review is Medellin versus Texas, which reads like a, uh, uh, a law school exam. There's a combination of international law, federalism, separation of powers, executive authority, and criminal procedure. Here the court said that a decision of the International Court of Justice uh, uh, interpreting the Vienna Convention on Consular Rights, which says that a, a foreigner detained, arrested uh, in, in one of the signatory countries, which includes the United States, is allowed to have his consul present. Here, the consul was not present for a, uh, a gang rapist and murderer, um, and 
the, the Supreme Court found that this, this decision by the International Court called the World Court is not directly enforcing, and President Bush's attempt to enforce it by writing a memo to then-Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez saying, have the Texas courts enforce this, was also insufficient. So uh, the court struck down both the executive overreach and an attempt to constitutionalize international law. The last term of the Supreme Court was widely referred to as a Kennedy court. Where does that where does that stand now? Sure. This last year, uh, a full third, 24 of the 72 cases were 5-4 decisions, and Justice Kennedy was in the majority in that five every single time. Uh, for the whole year of the 72 cases, he only dissented twice. This year, there were fewer 5-4 splits. Interestingly, there were also fewer unanimous and 8-1 decisions, so we had many more 6-3 and 7-2, and uh, those are somewhat a function of just the vagaries of the docket, given the small number of overall cases. Uh, and yes, Kennedy dissented more. In fact, this year, Chief Justice Roberts uh, was in the most majority. He was in the majority uh, 90% of the time. Um, Kennedy, I don't think, was even number two. Uh, but for the most significant, controversial, and uh, the ones that are called uh, ideological splits, the ones that are 5-4 by the conventional conservative four, liberal four, plus Kennedy joining one of them, uh, you know, Kennedy was, it was still his court on those. Cases like Boumediene, like Heller, uh, the campaign finance case, um, the, the, the capital child rape case, uh, and Kennedy wrote uh, a lot of those cases as well. So it's, it's really the vagary of the docket. I, I don't think that you could say that it's uh, that much less a Kennedy court, um, although given what we see in terms of um, the way that there are 7-2 and 6-3 decisions, you could say that Chief Justice Roberts' uh, influence on the court is allowing kind of more narrow decisions in the minimalist way that he said he wanted to conduct his court at his confirmation hearings. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Constitution Day is September 17th. You can register to attend Cato's festivities at our website, cato.org.